On today's episode of Substances, we talk with Professor Malcolm Foley, the Dean of the School of Business and Enterprise at the University of the West of Scotland via Skype. We discuss the differences between how people identify with their nation states versus their local identity, and how that has an impact on creating soft power initiatives. Professor Foley also gave us insight into how national identity and populism go hand in hand. We also talked briefly about how democracy needs to reconcile these varying national identities in order to reach a stronger system. We hope you enjoy the show. with you, we discussed evaluating the strength of soft power initiatives, such as measures taken by the British Council. We also talked about the difficulties with justifying these measures to governments, especially with the lack of clear objective. Yep. Could, you, could you comment on that, please? You know, everything is difficult without a clear objective, uh, of course, and particularly around the territory of soft power. Sometimes there's a great deal of reluctance to to articulate objectives clearly and openly, uh, shall we say. So my, my, my view is, uh, as a Democrat, it's really important that uh, objectives are clear, the intentions are clear, and that these are openly understood by all of the participants, including those that are intended to be the beneficiaries of some of the kind of initiatives that we talked about uh, in the classes that we held together uh, in Berlin. Um, I think that's probably all I, I can say about that, really. I mean, my view is, quite simply, uh, openness and transparency uh, is always going to be better than subterfuge and secrecy. Right. So we were just, uh, we wanted to lead in with that so that we could kind of start with our first question and asking, when creating these initiatives, would you say it's better to focus on people's ideologies or their national identities, since that could have an implication? Mm -hmm. I think the... the I've considered that. Yeah, I was thinking about that last night when I reviewed the questions. I think there's a really difficult, it's difficult to get to what we mean by national identity. So approaching through national identity is pretty much, I'd say, a moving feast. I mean, national identity is rarely a singular unifying thing. Perhaps North Korea might disagree with me, but by and large, there are a series of national identities in, in many nation states, some of which are national, some of which are transnational, you know, post-globalization, some of which are driven by ideological positions, but equally some of which are driven by cultural circumstances as well. And they may also be gender or, or any other form of specific. I don't believe children share the same national identities as their parents, for example. So, my, my, in a sense, my challenge to your question, which is the way you'd expect academics to go, isn't it, really, um, is can we really get an adequate understanding of what is meant by Not everyone agrees that there are such things as national identities. Largely, they're made up of a whole set of issues that are driven by the geographical, by the political, uh, and, and, and by the cultural. And then there are a whole set of further issues about how such identities are reproduced, possibly compromised, um, as we go through the generations. Yeah, families have got an important uh, role to play in that. Schools and education has 
the media have, uh, and there will be others, advertising, you know, peer group pressures, um, and so on. All of these are evident, it seems to me, in within nation states, uh, and within those nation states, there are a series of complex identities of the young, the old, uh, the the the, the uh, different ethnic backgrounds, uh, different gender and even transgender uh, sort of issues, for example, and so on. So approaching through some, I would say, almost mythical idea of a single uh, unifying national identity is potentially quite dangerous because that's likely to be, to be the national identity either of a of established and shall we say uh, respectable groups uh, within those nations or by those who have the dominant political or economic positions uh, in, in those societies. So the challenge for those of us involved in these forms of diplomacy is knowing that and recognizing that none of what I've said is 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 difficult or unknown or a huge surprise uh, to anybody, is knowing that how can we yet uh, enable those from those different, sometimes conflicting identities, benefit from exposure to other identities from other nation states. Because, and, and, and I'm keeping going because you're not interrupting me, um, there, there's an equally challenging set of circumstances and dangerous assumptions about the national identities that may be prevalent in what we, what those who are transmitting uh, the, the soft power messages are uh, lie behind some of those messages as well. Um, these two are not necessarily the subject of a single national identity. Um, so your question, of course, was, is it identity or is it ideology? Um, there are some challenges, I think, to um, what, how, how the ideological uh, is being played out in global and indeed even within uh, nation states at the moment. And I, I certainly think that can impact upon national identities. And I think there are ways in which uh, identities can be reformed around ideological circumstances. Not all of these are necessarily positive. Some might say not any of them are positive, but I think it's uh, impossible to expect uh, populations to ignore ideological positions, which after all tend to give logic uh, to political and other stances, even if it's not necessarily logic with which everyone would agree. Uh, so implications of all of that? is you need to be really careful. I think that, they, they, so one, be careful. Two, I would argue, be local. Uh, so approaching at, the, at national levels, and I think we discussed this in some of the case studies in the classroom, uh, can be hazardous. Uh, it can mean that the, the, the initiatives don't penetrate uh, a small elite, often, uh, but not always, in a capital city. So we did mention a couple of things, for example, I think in, in South America, where much more local initiatives were supported and encouraged through things like dance uh, and uh, other um, other cultural forms, which even if the formats of the dance weren't shared uh, transnationally, the idea of dancing uh, had been shared and was something that could lead to a genuine cultural exchange between, and I hesitate to use the term, but ordinary people rather than highly paid uh, diplomats, politicians, or industrialists. Yes. Mm. Yeah. No. Absolutely. You're saying, you know, you know what? It's trite to say it, but in this social media age, it is far easier for for us, all of us, all three of us, uh, to communicate with people just like us uh, in in Colombia or in Brazil or in 
or in North America, uh, for that matter, um, and any other part of Europe than it used to be. There are far fewer intermediaries uh, preventing us from having a direct communication, provided that we can get across the barrier of language. It is relatively simple this afternoon uh, for us to reach people in universities or, and, or students working um, in our subject areas across the world without much difficulty. So, and it's equally the same, I think, uh, in diplomatic terms. It's about the choices that we make as to who the messages are going to reach and how quickly and through what mechanisms we're going to reach them. A Canadian academic, Marshall McLuhan, did observe many, many years ago that the medium is the message. And I think that you know, particularly as regards our the way that many young people more your age than mine uh, operate in the world now, the media that you use to reach each other are very much part of the message, which is, I think, you know, that we are open to at least listening to others. Yeah. Um. So when we're talking about kind of reaching people through these local means, um, I would say almost in a way that that kind of disconnects it from populism, because our uh, second question was going to be, do you think that the rise of populism has an impact on identity? But from what you just said, it seems like it almost wouldn't. Well, I think the, the thing with the rise of populism is, I mean, first off, I think we've probably all got our own definitions of populism. Um, and they won't necessarily all concur with each other. So it's always a little bit difficult. Um, I hear a lot of people, a lot of my students, uh, talk about and use, and use the term. I think it's a convenient shorthand for, uh, for uh, what I would call a relatively crude democratic understanding, which is that simply counting the votes uh, gives you a, a democracy. Um, I would contend that there is more to democracy than, than the voting, although that is obviously essential and central to what a democracy amounts to. But underlying the, the, the freedom to express one's opinion through the ballot box are a set of assumptions that need to be lying there to ensure that one is making a, a considered um, and knowledgeable response to, uh, to any political circumstances and, and obvious things like a free press and other uh, freedoms understood in, generally in, in, uh, in, in democratic societies are essential before we reach the stage of perhaps demonizing some people because they don't vote the same way as we do. So I'm not suggesting, for example, that people who don't vote like me uh, are not as smart as me or not as well read as me or not as well informed as me, but I think there is a responsibility uh, with, for citizens within a democracy to make informed choices. And if those informed choices lead to uh, leaderships uh, that don't necessarily uh, share the same values uh, that I do, or some of my colleagues or family do, then that's okay uh, if it's a genuine democracy. I think, of it, uh, I think there are other forms where you know, votes are counted, but we don't necessarily have the full, um, full deck of cards that would be necessary for a democratic society. So getting back then to, you know, d d d well, can that undermine the, the idea of nation states? No, I don't think it can. I think what it can do is ensure that those who are entitled to vote should take the opportunity to vote. Some of the, some of the concerns I hear expressed about so-called populism um, amount to the simple fact that people who didn't used to take the opportunity to vote have started voting. 
Um, and sometimes they don't always share the same values as the population who previously was doing all of the voting. So we may be seeing some seismic changes in what is expected of our politicians, uh, what is expected of our diplomats. And I guess it's up to everybody concerned, whether it's the citizens or those whom they elect, to ensure that informed choices are made, that tolerance, uh, is, in, in my view anyway, um, is encouraged, uh, and that democracy is able to be sustained uh, and not uh, undermined by itself. Yes, because definitely when um, those this populism um, rise has risen in with Brexit and everything, the um, participation in um, voting and um, taking part and actually talking of politics did really rise amongst young people, old people. It's now really a, a good thing to talk about. People are interested. Do you, do you also think, well, I mean, I'm from Austria, so that, that's what's happening in Austria, actually, where the participation was always very low and now it is rising. I think we, uh, Brett, you mentioned Brexit, I, I picked that up. Um, so, you know, before we manage it, I, I live in, uh, in part of the United Kingdom called Scotland, and commonly and correctly, our Scottish politicians observe that by quite a large majority, the people of Scotland, which is part of the United Kingdom, and would could be said to have fairly um, well-constructed national identity, people of Scotland voted against leaving the European Union. Yeah. Yet, the people of the United Kingdom, uh, in totality, voted to leave uh, the, the European Union. Uh, so, um, we're, you know, we, we in Scotland have got that challenge of, uh, as part of, currently anyway, the United Kingdom, we voted to stay in Europe, uh, yet it is likely that our Prime Minister will march us out of Europe potentially with a great deal of hazard, particularly for parts uh, of the country like Scotland, which is a large rural population, uh, which is quite dependent upon oil revenues uh, and which uh, doesn't necessarily have a large manufacturing base. So we, but, and I guess I use that example, and it is an example, because when we start breaking down voting patterns, we may, we may find, and I don't know that this is correct, but that young people tended to vote to stay in uh, the European Union. I think that is correct. I think if the, the, the older and less well qualified a person was, the more likely they were to vote to come out of the European Union. Um, and so in the, the, once we start breaking it down into whatever identities we would like to choose, whether that's age or gender or nation, nations within a, a particular uh, overall nation state, we will find people who I were right, very much more keen to do whatever the general population wanted, or very much less keen to do what the rest of the population wanted. And that's the, that's the danger and the challenge of democracy, as it always has been, is actually reconciling after the voting moment um, the, uh, the possibilities for those who voted for whatever it is that the outcome uh, turns out to be, as well as for those who voted against that outcome, and who no doubt will now be feeling challenged, worried, afraid, uh, and many more other uh, and, and negative sort of feelings as well. So, so we, we bundle we bundle ourselves into nation states and, and call them democracies. Uh, count up the the numbers of those who vote. Yeah, but the minute we, we break up into what we might call our, anything of our own identities, which could be you know people who, who listen to particular. Uh, forms of music or enjoy particular forms of art 
or choose particular sexual preferences uh, and so on, we may find ourselves at odds with the general population. That is the nature of democracy. And being able to reconcile that without having revolution, complete and utter breakdown and mayhem on the streets is, is the challenge to our politicians. Let's hope they can rise to that challenge. There are a few, uh, there are a few elections now coming up across Europe uh, which will demonstrate the extent to which after the votes are counted, uh, politicians can behave in a way uh, that enables nations to be able to continue in productive and coherent ways uh, that will not necessarily lead to breakups. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, and just on a concluding question, um, we are looking at your book, Dark Tourism, and how it discusses how a dark past doesn't necessarily doom a nation to a dark future. Do you think that countries using dark tourism could use it to help form a brighter future amongst countries who share a colonial past, such as England or India? Um, yeah, I think the, you, you, you mentioned England and India. Let me get to that um, in a moment. Certainly, I mean, the, the book was written in the mid-1990s, uh, uh, as I recall. So it's quite, quite a long time ago, and we were, you know, we were looking at, at a Europe and an Asia uh, that are probably rather different now. Uh, than they were then, and, and in some cases, so-called dark pasts uh, have uh, reared their their heads to um, uh, to create challenges and uh, geopolitical challenges in others um, across the world. Certainly, what I would say is I think that a credible and open interpretation of our pasts, and I include that as a plural, our pasts can contribute to a better hope for future understanding and tolerance. And in a sense, that lay behind a number of the things that I and John Lennon um, included uh, in the book that we wrote. The challenge there, though, is, is, is there a single collectively agreed past? I think it's always relatively easy uh, to move towards reconciliations where the so-called dark past can be collectively agreed by more or less all concerned to have been something that perhaps shouldn't happen again uh, or shouldn't happen in that way again or whatever. Now, the obvious example of that is, is closer to where you are than when I am. So the interpretation of the years of, of Nazi rule uh, in, in Germany uh, are pretty much, I, don't know, I know not everyone agrees with it, but the interpretations that are offered, particularly but not only in Berlin, but across Germany and former concentration camps and so on, are pretty much consistent with each other. That this was that this was wrong. That these people who perpetrated this uh, were misguided, if not evil, um, and that it definitely should never happen again. Um, and that 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 pretty much is an agreed position. One wouldn't always get the same collective, national, perhaps. Uh, or even international agreement uh, in a number of other things. Now, we might include England or Britain, uh, as it was, as it is, um, and India in that past, because I think that there are, there are some challenges, and not just between Britain um, and India, but between the sub-parts sub of what was seen as India within the British Empire, but which is now India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, and other countries um, uh, as well, uh, all of whom have perhaps different interpretations of the past or lay different emphases on particular incidents in the past. So 
I, I personally am always a little bit uncomfortable with a single unifying agreed history because pretty much my simple experience of the world suggests to me that we experience it differently and we interpret it differently. So I'm not necessarily sure that when we write up Brexit as history in a hundred years' time, that everyone will see it in, in the same way. Equally, I think when we, as we write up uh, British colonial rule in India or in any other part of the world, for example, there will be different versions of those histories. And, they won't, and I don't just mean political versions, there'll be gendered versions, there'll be ethnic versions, there'll be, the again, the experiences of the young um, and the relatively less young, uh, and so on as well. So while I think for the kind of genocides that were evident in the Nazi period in Germany, Germans, many Germans, the vast majority of Germans, and the vast majority of those around the world uh, who are aware of the, of the Holocaust and the behavior of, of Nazis towards other uh, minority populations as well, recognize that that was unacceptable. In a way, it's relatively simple because that's a past quite long ago among people who are pretty much all dead uh, and from whom uh, Germany, in the form of West Germany and East Germany, distanced themselves very quickly after the end of the Second World War for a whole set of reasons, not, not any of which, of course, were to do with tourism and interpretation back then, what to do with, uh, with economy uh, and enabling populations literally to survive the horrendous winters and starvation uh, that continued afterwards. Uh, that actually led to at least a single unifying attitude towards that past. So I think that, and, and I think the, the book Dark Tourism does pick a number of examples um, where it was, and I'm looking back at it and I'm being critical of my own work, it was relatively simple to choose these and recognize that there was a, a, a desire to move on and, and then represent those pasts as something unacceptable and frankly, something different from those whom we, the current population, actually are. When in reality, you know, my grandfather uh, fought in, in, in two world wars, uh, for example. So I guess I'm part of that identity in some way uh, or another. We all are uh, through our, our, our families, our legacies and our heritages, uh, for example. So the book chose, it certainly chose Nazi Germany. Uh, my recollection is we chose the, the, uh, the Kennedy assassination, which was very much a... Uh, and still is a contested narrative, I suppose. We did quite a bit of work around Pearl Harbor um, and, and Vietnam, again, all of which are, are relatively contested narratives, and they are much more complex in terms of using using the interpretation of a dark past as a touristic form uh, becomes much, much more of a challenge, unless the touristic form is brave enough to represent two or three or four versions of the same story all at once. And I, do, I don't and haven't. I have some places seen examples of that, uh, but not too often. So I think that there is a facing up to the past that's necessary before it can become something to be offered into, a, frankly, a commodity uh, that tourists can enjoy. Now, I, I, I did a radio interview closer to the time when the book was published, and a number of people who were interviewed on the same programme found the idea of turning a Jewish Holocaust site into a touristic experience deeply offensive. Uh, because for those people not the, who were Jewish, this was their, their heritage being turned into a commodity rather than a site of remembrance 
of a horrendous acts that were perpetrated in some cases uh, upon their families. So we will all we will always find a challenge uh, if we try to turn our pasts into a commodity, particularly if those are pasts that have informed, that have been uh, rather formed of behaviours that are, shall we say, less edifying than normal diplomatic approaches. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Substances. We hope our conversation helped pique your interest in exploring the role that identity plays in both politics and creating cultural initiatives. You can find Malcolm Foley's book, Dark Tourism, on Amazon or in your local bookstore. If you enjoyed today's interview, we'd love to hear from you in the comments or via email at dosageofrepartee at gmail.com. If you love our podcast and want to hear more interviews like this one, we would love it if you reviewed us on iTunes. Thanks for listening.